I'm currently interviewing people from Warren's past. And the one thing they all say about Warren is he sees things other people don't see in everything. Yep. In trading, in economics, in boat building, in the design of cars. But he's very modest, he's very kind. He doesn't make people feel small. MMT is applicable to all the countries of the world. It explains it. It's just you have to see it in the sense that it pinpoints the problems in each of those systems differently. What I have said is that this campaign is not just about electing a president. It is about making a political revolution. Taking money from our children and borrowing from China. People are dying. Is the program so critical it's worth borrowing money from China to pay for it? And if not, I'll get rid of it. Stop lying! Now, let's see if we can avoid the apocalypse altogether. Here's another episode of Macro and Cheese with your host, Steve Grumbine. All right, it's Steve with Macro and Cheese, and I am going across the pond. I am going to be talking with a great guy, part of the GIMS world. You know him as Phil Armstrong, and Phil is recently retired from economics, teaching, and now works part-time in the engineering division at York College in the UK. He gained his PhD in economics at the University of Solent under the supervision of Professor Nick Potts. He is a strong advocate of modern monetary theory, MMT, and has recently published his first book, Can Heterodox Economics Make a Difference? Conversations with Key Thinkers, published by Edward Elgar, and written several articles which have been published in peer-reviewed journals. He's an associate at the Gower Institute for Modern Money Studies and a member of the Association for Heterodox Economics. And with that, welcome to the show, sir. Great to be with you, Steve. It's a pleasure to be part of a great podcast like yours. Um, I'm really looking forward to talking to you and Maybe having a nice conversation about MMT matters and other things should be great. Absolutely. I'm looking at your book. We have transcripts for every one of these podcasts, and we have been flirting for a long time with some sort of a macro and cheese tome of all the interviews. And here is a gentleman that took this great idea, did all these fantastic interviews, and created a book. And that's basically what we're going to talk about today. That, and of course, we'll get into your MMT roots and a little bit of background about who Phil Armstrong is. Yeah. But I guess let's start. What gave you the idea to put together this book? Oh, well, it's a bit of a long story, but I mean, I did a degree in economics a very, very long time ago. And I started that in 1976 and I finished it in 79. And then I went into teaching economics and I just, high school economics, what we call A-level here in England. And I taught A-level economics for a lot of years. Did have a year in the USA teaching high school economics, which was quite interesting. 
just as a little aside on that, I was in Iowa and I was teaching seniors and juniors economics and the classes were all full. I had a 30 in every single class. And when every time I was speaking, all the students are silent. And I thought, wow, this is great. They're loving their economics. So anyway, I'll be talking about whatever it was, demand and supply, macro policy, and hanging on me every word. I thought, this America, this is the place to be. And so I said to one of the students at the front, I said, you must be loving your economics. You guys, you're just hanging on me every word. And she just said to me, oh, we ain't interested in economics. We just love your accent. <laughs> so pardon my little poor American accent. I learned then that it was just the way I was saying the words. And obviously being Iowa, they said that themselves, that foreign people don't go to Iowa. They go to California or Florida or New York. So I was a little bit of a mini celebrity there, mini celebrity. So I enjoyed my time in the US. And then coming back to England, I did a master's in the 80s. And I got quite into post-Keynesianism. And then I kind of kept up a bit with post-Keynesian stuff. And with the financial crisis, my interest developed a bit more. And I got back into my economic theory, if you like. I spent some time as an alumnus of Leeds, going to their staff seminars. I enjoyed that. But I knew post-Keynesianism had quite a lot of insight, but there was something missing. I didn't quite know what that something missing was. And then I came across a guy you know very well, a guy called Warren Mosler. Oh, yes. Yeah, you'll know the great man. So I emailed him and I asked him a few questions. And no matter where he was, he would send me a little answer to my question, short, sharp, with a little from myself underneath. And I kind of learned about MMT from Warren. And then I got to know about this Gower Initiative, and I joined them, and they're obviously a great movement here in the UK for putting forward MMT. And then another thing I decided to do was to do a PhD in, shall we say, late middle age. <laughs> and I met this guy, Nick Potts, who's a professor. He's a Marxist. Uh -huh. He's very interested in MMT, so we worked together on something around the MMT idea. And I had this sense of, could MMT work with other heterodox schools and in what way? So my PhD was based on qualitative research. And as you mentioned, Steve, about the interviews, I interviewed economists from a whole range of schools. MMT is, of course, Warren, I interviewed all the major MMT, kind of the big three, Warren, Bill, and Randy Ray, also Martin Watts and James Juniper, plus people who are not MMTs, even MMT critics like Thomas Pally, for example, Austrian school guys, mainstreamers, central bankers, just to see what people thought about heterodox economics, whether they'd heard of MMT, whether they thought heterodoxy could work together. For the mainstreamers, did they consider heterodoxy a threat? These types of things. And that was really my research. It was about the status of heterodoxy overall, to what extent were the different scholars contradictory, and the extent to which MMT could work within heterodoxy, however defined. And it was a very interesting exercise for me. And what was interesting is I started interviewing people in 2018 
And most of the mainstream guys hadn't really heard of MMT. But by the time I was publishing my book in 2020, everyone had really heard of it. So in that two-year period, the profile of MMT had really increased. And obviously what comes with that, a lot more criticism as well. So you'll have noticed that it's in the press a lot more. Financial journalists would be more critical. I mean, all the criticism's not much good. They're all easily dismissed, in my opinion, anyway. At the end of the day, the profile of MMT is really increasing that period, and that's been really exciting. So really, the book is the qualitative research of my PhD. So my thesis is like, that research plus the analysis. And Edward Elgar obviously agreed to publish the interviews. They were rather longer than Edward Elgar wanted, but I said, well, if you're going to have one, you've got to have them all. Uh, <laughs> so they said, okay. And I was allowed a little bit of leeway for a conclusion and an introduction. But obviously, if any of your listeners are interested in the thesis, which is the analysis of the interviews, then that's obviously published and I can give you a link to it if it's working and they'll look at the whole thing. So that's the deal with the book. It's done okay. It's too expensive and I haven't sold as many as I would have done if it would have been cheaper. And that's kind of just the way it is with academic books, I think. Yeah. Unfortunately, Stephen Hale had written a book. It was quite expensive, well over a hundred dollars. And then Stephen Williams, who put together a collection of heterodox thinkers working toward a synthesis for ecological economics, his book is quite expensive. So it's very challenging to get the literature in the hands of regular people because most people are not going to be able to afford $100. So hopefully podcasts like this and the MMT podcast with Patricia and Christian can help dispense this information in a way that can be consumed and used. Yeah. So how did you even hear of Warren Mosler? Oh, well, it's quite a funny story in itself, like most of these things are. When I did my master's in the 1980s, there was a guy that taught me at Leeds, there's a guy called John Brothwell, and he was mad on post-Keynesianism. He's so enthusiastic. He was quite eccentric lecturer. You know, he'd flail his arms around and cover the blackboard in chalk. And he was always talking about post-Keynesianism being great and explaining how to explain the world. And this was kind of mind-bending for me because when I'd done my first degree, it was all like indifference curves and isoquants and stuff. And it didn't really have much to do with the real world. But post-Keynesianism, this seemed quite exciting. And the guy that he talked about a lot, John Brothwell, was the guy called Paul Davidson who is like one of the leading post-Keynesians in the world and probably the leading U.S., if you like, financial post-Keynesian. So he's quite a leading figure. And I bought a lot of Paul Davidson's work. I was in touch with him quite a lot by email, but I'd never heard him speak. So I thought one day on YouTube, I wondered if anything existed of Paul Davidson. So I put Paul Davidson into YouTube. And the only thing that was out at the time, and this is about, 2009, 2010, that sort of time. The only thing that came out was Warren Mosler introduces Paul Davidson. That was it, the only thing. So I listened to this, and this sort of guy with a very self-effacing sense of humour that we were later known as our very own Warren came out and gave a little introductory speech about Paul. 
And ironically, it cut off after that. I never really heard Paul anyway, but <laughs> to, to answer <laughs> your question, I thought this Warren Mosler guy seems quite interesting. I was quite curious, who is Warren Mosler? So I Googled it. I emailed someone in his office. I can't remember who it was. And she said to me, oh, well, you can just email him directly with a question. I thought, are you sure? And she said, yeah, just email him on this address. So I did. And I asked him a question. And he asked me straight away. As I said, he gave me a little answer. So I'd say something like, do taxes fund spending? And he went, no, or whatever. And now I say, you know, can the government control the long-term yield curve risk-free? And he'd go, yes, and it would do this. And that was it. And then I said, what about the liquidity trap? And he goes, it only applies under fixed exchange or whatever. And so on and so forth. So that's how it happened. It happened because of this interview. And if any of your listeners want to check it out, a young Warren Mosler. It's not very good audio quality, not as good as yours, Steve. But if you want to put it into YouTube, Warren Mosler, that's the beginning of my MMT story. And then I got instant MMT, as I said. I was already going to these things at Leeds, which is quite a heterodox university, one of the most heterodox and outward-looking universities in Leeds. I was part of like their staff seminar group just because I was an alumni of the place. And then I met Martin Watts, the co-author of the textbook, because uh-huh. he came to give a talk, and I got to know Martin. And then through him, Got to know Bill. I met and talked to him in Brighton and also at the Gims launch. So slowly but surely, I built up the knowledge of the main MMTers. And when I interviewed Randy Ray for my book, I actually travelled to Italy and he gave me accommodation, his Italian flat. We had a good chat to each other then. That was nice. So I've got to know the MMTers quite well. But it all began with that little chance look at that YouTube video. And without that, well, for me, history might have been different. <laughs> I certainly wouldn't have done a PhD because I didn't know enough about anything. After a 31-year gap, when I was not in academia, I was just a high school teacher, that I was able to write a PhD. And in a way, that's a compliment to MMT because the fact that I can go and meet all these top professors in interviews, just as a high school teacher, and outmaneuver them. Well, how's that possible? Well, the only answer you get is I'm not cleverer than these guys. I'm not of their education. You know, I've not been Oxford and Cambridge and I've not been to Ivy League University in the US. The reason I can outmaneuver them and more than hold me on is because I learned MMT from Warren. I've got the system right. Yeah. And one of the things that like, people say to me, well, how do we know you're right? Well, it's because how else can I outmaneuver these guys? And one of my favorite little stories is if you imagine that you were an astronomer who understood Copernicus and you understood suns at the middle of the solar system, even if you weren't a great astronomer, you'd still be better, wouldn't you, than a really clever guy <laughs> who was a geocentric guy. If he thought the Earth was at the middle, he might have all the books and all those manuscripts and loads. But you're still going to beat him because you get the right model. Yes. And that what gives an mmt a huge advantage. My wife laughs at me because I'm always confident. You can give me a Nobel Prize winning mainstream or an expert inverted commas. And talks about ISLM models and the DSGE models. And I just go into that and meet them. Whether I'm right or not, I don't know. I'm always supremely confident because I've got the right model. 
I, I don't think I've lost yet. Some of these mainstream guys might think they got a draw. I don't know. But I think I beat them every time. You know what I mean? They won't come out and face me, though, you see. This is my problem, Steve. They won't argue with me because they'll think, well, I can't beat this guy. But I'm getting no humor. It's kind of like the Black Knight at the gate <laughs> at the bridge. Come on, fight me. <laughs> that is, call it a draw. You know, and it's exactly that. It really is. You've seen the film. So that's kind of the deal really there. You go back to those videos that you introduced yourself to Warren on. By meeting Warren in a YouTube video, mm. you can appreciate what I, learning mm. MMT through the interwebs, mm. and the grainy video, the terrible audio, yeah. You had nothing but white papers and maybe some articles that you had to really dig to find. Yeah. And then you had new economic perspectives where Randy was prolific, Scott Bullweiler, that whole gang. Yeah. But back then when I was learning MMT, there wasn't any convenient podcasts. Mm -hmm. There weren't any memes for people to use and learn easily. There weren't the short animated videos that people can watch a couple minutes. There wasn't a Stephanie Kelton deficit myth. There was, however, a Seven Deadly Innocent Frauds and a Soft Currency Economics book. And there was Randy Ray's Modern Money Primer that you yeah. could get in the New Economic Perspective. But that was about it. Yeah. And I mean, of course, there was all the wonky stuff, but nobody's going to read that stuff. Not even a person in college unless they were forced to. Yeah. So with that in mind, learning this stuff, you had to really want to learn it. Oh, yeah. Those things that you mentioned, Soft Currency Economics. I mean, I read that. I reread it. I read Seven Deadly Innocent Frauds. I got Warren to send me a thing to stick in it, signed. And basically, my copy of Understanding Modern Money, Randy Ray's 98 book, that's going to be one of the most read books in the world. Indeed. I read, I reread. And what was interesting is when I first got that book, I ignored a bit about money at the beginning. And I just concentrate on MMT. It's mind-bending. For an economist, I'm just nodding and yes, yes. So all the things I couldn't quite work out, it answered. And it's fantastic. And then I got into the money stuff because I'm really interested in the ontology of money and the stuff written about Innes and the credit theory and CNAP and state theory. So I'm really interested in the money side of things as well. So I went back into that. And that's why I call them the big three. The elder generation, Warren, Bill, Randy. And they all are slightly different. They all approach MMT slightly different. Warren's genius is unique. He's a polymath. I may have mentioned on Twitter that I'm currently trying to write Warren's biography. Wow. This is going to be a massive challenge because I've never written a biography. I'm currently interviewing people from Warren's past. And the one thing they all say about Warren is he sees things other people don't see in everything. Yes. In trading, in economics, in boat building, in the design of cars. But he's very modest. He's very kind. He doesn't make people feel small. He is an incredible guy. So it's a great honor for me to do that. It'll take me a while. So that's Warren. Then you got Bill and Bill is like the most prolific writer, as you know. Yes. And I love Bill's politics. 
I just love the way he looks at history. Whoa, what output this guy. And he is a truly great academic. And then you move on to Randy. Randy can be a bit prickly, and rightly so, with the post-Keynesians from that background. But boy, he understands all about money, the ontology of money, the nature of money. And for somebody like me who loves that, I read his Credit and State Theories of Money 2004. So those three guys, for me, they're the big three, as I say, they lead the foundations. And the new generation now are picking that up. Pavlina, Stephanie, of course, and others. And the new guys that are coming to learn about, as you say, Steve, they've got the big founders and they've got the new stuff, all the stuff that you're doing, your great work with Macro and Cheese and then Christian and Patricia over in the UK, the work that Dirk does as well in Europe. is fantastic scholar, Dirk Ains. You may know, I don't know if he's been on your show. Yeah, we interviewed him. Fantastic guy. He was one of my PhD examiners. <laughs> I got to tell you, this is a shout out to another OG that frequently gets overlooked, and that's Matt Forstater, who was very much critical to pulling all these people together. And Matt Forstater is a trailblazer in his own right, and he has been able to merge a lot of important things, especially race and other things that have contributed heavily to inequality. I love the whole gang. It's just an amazing group of people. Yeah. This is my first time getting to talk to you, though I know who you are and I've followed your work. This is really an honor, quite frankly, to be able to talk with you. I remember when Bill Mitchell came out there to the GIMS kickoff. Mm -hmm. I also remember some of what I consider to be very important delineation points. And I start with Bill Mitchell's book, Reclaiming the State. Yeah. One of the things that really is important here for all of us to understand it's not just neoclassical economics that we're up against. We're up against the concept of neoliberalism as well, which has a definite agenda mm. and it uses economics to fulfill its purposes. It uses theory. It uses things that they know to be incorrect to advance their privatization schemes. And you see that in the UK with the NHS, in the United States, even as we speak, Biden trying to privatize Medicare. So MMT is a global project, mm. but in the beginning, and this is where I'm going, even though Bill Mitchell is one of the big three, mm. frequently one of the lies that are thrown at the MMT community is that it's just an American phenomenon and that it doesn't have a place in the global stage. And we know that to be incorrect, but the UK didn't have strong academics that were supporting the MMT movement until you and Gims. <laughs> And some of the best stories come out of Italy from Warren Mosler's time with the Lira. How do you see the global movement for MMT through your lens as someone in the UK? How do you see that transpiring now that you've done so much research, especially with the book that you've written? Well, I'm always an optimist. MMT explains how everything works. It explains how the system worked under fixed exchange rates and the gold standard. As you'll know all too well, it explains how the system works when you've got your own sovereign currency and the floating exchange rate, which most countries have. And it also explains how it's real constraints that are binding rather than sort of financial constraints. 
when we have the last type of monetary system I mentioned, you're floating exchanges and your own sovereign fiat non-convertible currency, etc. So MMT is applicable to all the countries of the world. It explains it. It's just you have to see it in the sense that it pinpoints the problems in each of those systems differently. So what a lot of the critics do is, they look at what MMT says about America and then say, oh, yeah, but it doesn't apply to third world countries or developing nations or it didn't apply under the gold standards. As if we don't know that. Of course we know that. It's in all the MMT literature that if you are real resource poor, even if you did achieve full employment and if the government used it exactly the right type of understood MMT and developed policies that follow from that to maximize their output and full employment sustainably, etc. It still might not be able to produce all the food and essential resources it needed to. Of course, we know that. And there may need to be real resource transfers from the global north, the global south. And obviously, you'll know well, Fidel is a good friend of ours. He's written a lot about that. So, Basically, MMT explains all the problems or brings it to light what the problems are. And if you like, calibrates the menu for your choices. As you know, it's not a set of policies. It's an explanation of what's happening in different types of systems and different types of countries with different sets of real resource allocations. And that's why I think it's got real potential. The thing about it is, Steve, it needs a generous audience who will read it in that way, you know? Yes. So it's developed predominantly in the US and in Australia. But if you read it and you understand it, you realize it applies across the world through all things because it's nuanced. It hasn't just got one thing fits all. And it opens the door, I think. And it'll take a while because... There's a lot of inertia in people's thinking, you know, and this comes across in my book and is well known. People hang on to established theories perhaps longer than they ought to. And certainly in the UK, there's not enough academics who are of grass MMT, if any. The best European MMT that I know of is certainly Dirk. I don't know of any guys who would self-identify as an MMT as a working as a professor yet in a university. But I'm hoping if there's anyone listening out there from the UK or even America and you think, I'm just going to get my PhD and you're a bit younger than me, preferably 40 years younger, <laughs> and you fancy coming to a British university and being a chair and pushing MMT, because it's what we really need in the UK, and we need it around the world. The theory is there. It, in my opinion, wins every time. It's a far superior theory to mainstream, explains better. You understand the world better when you've got an MMT lens and a mainstream lens. So really, the intellectual war in many ways is won, but we have to reap the rewards of that one. We haven't really won until students are coming into universities holding up a copy of Manku's book and say, hey, professor, I found this old book. What's this? <laughs> it's covered in dust, you know? 
And the professor says, oh, it's something from economic history. Quite interesting. People used to believe all that. And the student says, you're joking. Oh, yeah, they did. Then hands over the 12th edition of Mitchell Watson Ray and goes, now let's get back the real stuff. <laughs> yes. And that's what we're looking for. But in answer to your question, globally, it's moving. Maybe not as quickly as we want because we're fighting against inertia. The mainstream wants to stay where it is. People have got good careers as professors. They're not going to change. Politicians, many of the time, they don't really understand economics, but the system as it is suits them. So they don't want to change. And even if they've got an inkling that MMT was right, they want to attack it because it damages their career. So really, it's going to be difficult to push, but we're getting there. And I often talk about Star Wars. If you think about the mainstream as the Death Star, <laughs> an MMT, where those guys, that ragtag brigade. Flying X-Wings. Yeah, we haven't quite blown them up yet, but we're taking off and we're gathering for the final assault. And we've got Warren. He's Obi-Wan. That's perfect. Warren Mosler is definitely Obi-Wan. Yeah. I guess I'm Jar Jar Binks, right? <laughs> no, no, hey, you know, Jar Jar. <laughs> you can be Han Solo. I'll be cool with Han Solo. Yeah. You are listening to Macro and Cheese, a podcast brought to you by Real Progressives, a nonprofit organization dedicated to teaching the masses about MMT, or modern monetary theory. Please help our efforts and become a monthly donor at PayPal or Patreon. Like and follow our pages on Facebook and YouTube, and follow us on Periscope, Twitter, Twitch, Rockfin, and Instagram. Our very first episode was putting the T in MMT. Mm -hmm. And we've got a lot of philosophers that tell us this needs to be renamed. Mm -hmm. But when I talked to Bill Mitchell, he locked the door on that for me. Even though he wasn't the one that came up with it named, it is a true theory, a series of conjectures that come together. This is a theory in the most true sense of the word, like the theory of relativity or gravity. But to Bill Mitchell's point, the only law is that we died. And so a theory is an elaborative collection of logical conjectures that you can see, repeat, and you can make some solid observations based on these conditions. Talk to me a little bit about your understanding of theory. Yeah, well, when you go into philosophy of science, really, which is what we're touching on, what I think is quite interesting is the point of theory is that it explains something. Now, by that, I mean, when you understand a the theory, you go, ah, get it now. So that's how it is. All right. Now, sometimes when you have a theory that explains, it can be counterintuitive. So what you do is you check whether or not 
the things the theory predicts is going to happen do happen. And if they constantly fail, and over a long period of time, the expectations the theory gives you don't happen, you begin then, don't you, to lose confidence in that theory, and you move to an alternative. Now, I don't know if you listen to that Kuhnian view of science. Really, theories, they're an abstraction of reality that enables you to better understand the totality of reality. Now, you might say, well, where does it start in your mind? And now there's lots of different views, but I believe in this idea of retroduction, and it's a way of inferring things. So just to give you an example in MMT, how that would work. You look for something that stands out, if you like, in the flux of experience is a fancy term for what's happening around you. Just take one simple example. All the mainstream economists, without exception, said after the global financial crisis, there'll be a rise in government deficits, and that would drive up long-term interest rates. The old thing, big deficits, more borrowing, higher interest rates crowding out. We've heard that all the time. So that was an expectation. And yet in every single major country in the world, which had its own currency, I'm not talking about Eurozone countries, and even there it's slightly complicated. But looking at the US, the UK, Japan, Australia, Canada, all of them, despite massive increase in deficits, the long-term interest rate went down uh. in a mall. Now, to me, that is what I'd call like a major falsification of mainstream economics. But it's entirely consistent with MMT's model, when there's excess reserves in the deficit, it will drive the interest rate to zero, and the long-term rate is simply built on the expectations of what people think is going to happen with the short-term rate. And the government can control the whole yield curve if it wishes. So everything that happened, according to the MMT lens, was perfectly well explained. Whereas the mainstream model had no ability at all to explain reality. So people are scratching their heads. Now, at that point, in economics, you have this idea of the ceteris paribus condition. You probably heard that where all other things being equal. So what the mainstream has said, oh, well, unforeseen circumstances. So they started to make little amendments. Oh, well, we kind of made a little bit of a mistake and we're going to put that right. Now, to me, that's bad theory. What they did was they behaved like a pseudoscientist. Their theories were falsified, but they just carried on regardless. They just kind of came in the next day and pretended the global financial crisis. Kind of like Milton Friedman did with the quantity theory of money, yeah, huh? Yeah, it was disproved, <laughs> so they made something up, yeah. And obviously the paper that Warren and I wrote. On hyperinflation. On the Weimar hyperinflation. Yes. And if you think about it plausibly, if you imagine intelligent German bankers in the Weimar Republic, and these are bankers, they don't like inflation. You tell me a banker who likes inflation. Never met one. <laughs> so the idea that they came in one day into the Reichsbank when the Habenstein gets the other guys, the chairman of the Reichsbank, says, right, lads, crank up the presses. Uh, I just fancy causing a bit of hyperinflation. 
The idea is ludicrous. And if you actually look at the figures, if you look at the data, the increases in the money supply always lag the price level. The price level goes up first. And then the Reichsbank was forced to print the money to allow the system to operate at that. If they didn't do that, the whole system would crash. And if the original forces which drive up the prices still exist, well, next time you start doing it, your economy's in ruin. So it was an agonizing decision for the German authorities to allow enough money to be printed so the system didn't crash. And the, the great writers of the time, Helfrich, apologies if people have good German pronunciation better than mine, they all knew that at the time. And this ludicrous idea that the quantity of money is exogenous and people just chuck more money and it causes inflation. It is totally ridiculous when compared to empirical evidence, sequencing. It's got so many holes in it. It's like Swiss cheese. The natural question you would ask, I think, is if what I say is true, so the mainstream was categorically falsified by the financial crisis, all its models failed. Why is it still there? Well, I would argue, and this comes out in my thesis in a way, is what mainstream economics has done is got rid of all of the alternatives so that, in a sense, heterodoxy is so marginalized that it's very, very difficult for people to switch to other theories because they're not on the table. It's very difficult to move. And a lot of the great economists are kind of pushed into like business schools, you know what I mean? Or maybe economic geography, because mainstream economics is all this mathematical modeling, which has almost no relevance to the real world. And you know, I was talking to a guy in my book, he's very, very good at maths. And he says, when the mainstream economists say they've proved something with maths, They've just proved it in the context of their model. It doesn't have anything to do with the world. I guess you could say, well, if you understand the biology of the unicorn really, really well, and you've studied the unicorn, you understand all about the unicorn, you've got it all written down, great, fantastic. It's all logical, makes sense, you know. When it's horns of the wrong colour, you know what to do. When it's hooves hurt, you know what to do. Fantastic. The only problem is, the unicorn doesn't exist. <laughs> so that's really what the mainstreamers have made up a world that's kind of like ours, but not quite. And their theories work for that world. And because our world is quite similar to theirs, most of the time they get away with it. But when <laughs> our world shows itself to be different to theirs, like if it was a horse and it suddenly got ill, their biology of the unicorn doesn't work, and that's what happened to them in the financial crisis. There was a divergence, and their models were all useless. And how they got around that quite cleverly by reinventing it as a government crisis, and that goes back to this neoliberalism thing that you talk about, Steve. Yes. The reality of it is most people, because the orthodoxy has a stranglehold on the academy the journals, mm. and the universities, with very few exceptions for heterodox thinking. And so they have learned this bastardized economics. And worse, 
you spoke of your friend that is a Marxist, but I don't think Marx said this is the way it's always going to be. I think Marx tried to take scientific approach to things, even if he got some things wrong. And Marxism would elaborate with that as well. It would change according to the material needs and conditions of the time. But we're seeing new synthesis come out even now. The Money on the Left gang is looking at a new philosophy to marry realism and other things with that as well. So things do change as systems change. Somebody's got to ensure that we have a correct mapping of the new systems and how they connect. And so my explanation to people when they ask me, what is MMT? MMT is a description of currency, period, wherever it is, however it is. It's a description of monetary and fiscal operations, and it's a lens. So if you tell me that we're back on the gold standard, MMT would describe that. It would describe any changes to the functional system. And the theory itself would continue to grow and change depending upon the nature of the system. So a lot of people think that if you say it's theoretical, then that means that it's not really real. And it's that layperson misunderstanding of the term theory that I think is so dangerous because it is a theory. What are your thoughts on that? I agree with you. I think there's kind of two aspects of that. I think MMT does all the things you say. I think you put it very correctly, very eloquently, Steve. And I think there's a narrative fixation in economics of the types by Edward Fulbrook. And he talks about the statue of David. And when you look at the statue of David, it depends on the perspective you take of the statue. Heterodox schools take different perspective of the economic system. And therefore, at least in principle, they are complementary. And I'm not saying they won't have scholarly disagreements, these sorts of things. But they can, in my opinion, potentially work together. And the one thing that they have in common is they're based on this realist social ontology, a desire to understand the world as it is, as opposed to mainstream economics, which is not based on the world as it is. It's based on formal deductivism. In other words, let's start with a load of self-evident truths, which are very debatable. Whether they are sadly, but they said they are, you know, utility maximizing agents, the world is atomistic, and then they just develop models from that. So to me, there's great potential for people who come from a Marxist perspective, old institutionalist, post-Keynesian, MMT, ecological, to work together. But it won't be easy to do that, but it has potential. And like Nick and I, who's a TSSI Marxist. I mean, temporal single system interpretation, because there's lots of different types. And he's into Marxist value theory. We've written things together, some of the things that are on GIMS. We don't agree on everything, of course, but we have some commonality. So that's the important thing about heterodoxy. Not like glossing over the things, you know, we don't agree with. We don't do that. But there will be disagreements, scholar disagreements, as there will be even within school. And so to me, it's a matter of looking where you can work fruitfully together. Sometimes you can't. And to me, MMT is the best, bar none, at doing what you said, understanding the nature of money and the nature of monetary systems. That's what it does better than any other school. And there are things that it can work with in other schools that MMT doesn't talk about as much, and that's absolutely great. 
let me ask you a question. We do talk philosophy, but we're not a philosophical podcast, although I'm not afraid to go there. Yeah. There is some concerns about the relevance of Hegelian dialectics, historical materialism, mm-hmm. and dialectical materialism, mm-hmm. and realism. I see critique on mm-hmm. realism and dialectics. What are your perspectives of marrying the two? Are they compatible? Or is there something that can be learned from both sides? What do we have there? Well, that's a very interesting point. And firstly, I am not in any way an expert on anything on philosophy. I'm not an expert in things like dialectic materialism. I have a sort of a working knowledge of it. And I've certainly not been able to wade through a lot of Hegel because. It's tough. <laughs> this guy is hard work. My daughter's doing philosophy and she's been doing Marxist critical theory and looking at Hegel. And I know guys that have. So on that, I haven't focused much upon things like dialectic materialism. I get the idea of a basic dialectic, the idea of the thesis and the antithesis, the synthesis and moving forward. I think there's a lot in that on a very sort of basic route. So I'm not dismissing that. I haven't studied academically the link between the two philosophies, but I am what's called a realist social ontologist or a critical realist. Now, by that, I mean, I would first say that whenever we do any study, we make presuppositions about the world. Mm. And I would say that in the social world, there are processes and mechanisms that lie and they are distinct from our knowledge of them if you see what i mean yes that makes sense now these processes and these systems result in events and these events are studied it's what's called the transitive domain by scientists in our case economists now it's hard work is science it's a social project And what you're really trying to do is, you can't do controlled experiments. So you've got to look at what you see in these events. And they don't happen all the time. That's the thing. It's like volcanoes erupt, but they don't erupt all the time, (laughs) fortunately. So you're looking at the events in this, what's called the intransitive domain, not the scientist's work. So what happens is distinct from what we know of what happens. We're not committing what's called the epistemic fallacy, if any of your listeners heard of that. So what you're thinking about is what do I think's happening here? So you posit mechanisms about what you think might explain what you're seeing. You see what I mean? Now, to me, that's what MMT does. So someone like Warren will see something happening, an event, And he'll posit a mechanism and develop this mechanism in his head. And then when he thinks about the mechanism, and obviously going moving forward into the MMT community, we'll look at events. We've got mechanisms that we've developed in our head, the so-called MMT lens, and that explains what we see. So when we get things like, for example, massive government deficits when countries have got non-convertible currencies and floating exchanges, all the interest rates go down, not up. We know why, because we've posited the mechanisms to explain that. Now, to me, and this is any type of economics that's based on that type of 
realist social ontology of that type of method or mode of inference has got potential, I'm not saying it's easy, <laughs> to work together. If some guys are just doing some sort of formal deductive mathematical modeling, then they can't work with that because there's nothing about the real world in it. I work for a good friend of mine. He's a very nice guy. He's a mainstream economist. And I proofread mainstream journals. And they're just full of mathematical symbols. But there's nothing much about the real world. They're all like, here's four agents. They've got different degrees of information about each other. What will happen if? So they imagine a world which is like a giant auction quite often, not in every paper, and what will happen with different degrees and restricted information. So they're kind of quite interesting mathematical puzzles. But are they applied to the real world or not? In my opinion, not. And mainstream economics has achieved, in my opinion, very little. <laughs> That's a bit harsh. Uh -huh. It's a waste of good minds. And in answer to your other question about theory, some people use it, well, in theory it works, you know. And I think there's this artificial, and it's inhuman where we are, isn't it? Oh, well, it works in theory, but not in practice. There are all these little phrases we use. But theory really should simply do what I said. It should explain things so that when you understand the theory, you understand why, what's happening. So when you understand MMT, the fact that all those interest rates all fell all makes sense. Whereas before, if you only stood mainstream, you're scratching your head and go, why did that happen? So no good. <laughs> and another thing I think is really, really funny. If you take the model, right, okay, you know this idea of mainstreamers say that the real economy, the real, if you like, creator of real wealth is the private sector. And then the state comes along and sort of pinches real wealth off it, you know, and taxes fund spending. In that sense, money is an invention of the private sector and the private sector magically creates money. And then like some sort of pirate, along comes the state. And you'll hear all this time, government debt is bad and taxes fund spending. We can't afford Medicare and all this sort. Now, if that was true, if that's true, if we had a financial crisis, logically, Shouldn't it have been the government that are going to all the businesses, shouldn't it? Because they just said, they're the guys that create all the stuff. The government is just like a parasite. So logically then, the US government, the Federal Reserve, the Bank of England, the UK Treasury, we should have all been on our knees begging big business and big banks like Lehman Brothers to give them some money. <laughs> and did that uh -huh. happen anywhere? And I mean, like, anywhere? No. No, of course not. <laughs> because in a crisis, the great thing about a crisis is it reveals things, doesn't it? Like, if you're driving yes. along in your motor at 20 miles an hour and your brakes aren't very good, well, you might get away with it. You're going downhill at 75, you need it. When we had a financial crisis, all the big banks all went on bended knee to the Fed in the U.S., and Ben Bernanke's famous thing, your listeners will go, well, was that taxpayers' money, Ben? No, he's got a computer and we make the numbers up. So we all knew then, oh, all of that is complete tripe, which is a phrase we use a lot in England. 
for something that's nonsense. Obviously, the government issues a currency. So the idea that the government feeds off the private sector, it's obviously nonsensical. And this feeds in to what you were talking about, because neoliberals latched onto that. They know the state is the issuer, and they sort of use the state as a cash cow. And they're soaking up state or public money for their own purposes. And the idea that taxes fund the issuer, I mean, if you think about it, it's the most ludicrous idea in the world. Warren talks about, like, you know, bus tokens. You can't give a bus token back. The bus company doesn't go and collect tokens before it's issued them. A Roman emperor didn't go hunting round for his own coins before he'd actually told the bloke to mint them. Particularly sent anybody minting Roman coins without the emperor's permission would probably be executed. The whole idea of that, and you know this magic money tree? Well, it's not MMTers that use that. It's the other guys. They've got a magic money tree. You've got a magic money tree in the private sector. So the private sector, apparently using this magic tree that doesn't exist, can all get hold of state money, you guessed it, before the state's actually printed it. Now, that is a great conjuring trick. Indeed it is. <laughs> and I love that question. You just look a mainstreamer in the eye and ask them quietly and politely, where does the non-government sector get the dollars or the pounds? to pay their taxes. And then the um and are a bit and go, oh, well, it's a circular system. And often they'll say, you're being too theoretical. That means you got me. And I said, if you get a bucket of water, can you pour water out of a bucket till you put the water in? And I like being a teacher with a naughty student. You very politely ask the same question. You know, I don't know if you know much about teaching, but if the student won't do something, just, Right, Bill, I want you to do that work I set you, my friend. They don't do it. Right, Bill, you know I mentioned you do that. You keep on doing it politely and quietly. And that's what I do in mainstreamers until they give up. Because they can't explain how something can get into the system before it's been put there. And it's the $64,000 question. And they can't answer it. And that's why they've lost. They wriggle a bit, Steve. <laughs> they do indeed. And we can't quite get them, you know? I want to take you on one final thing before we close out. In the UK, a few years back, Grendel Towers burned down. A lot of people died. And this was about privatization and austerity. Two components of neoliberal and neoclassical worldviews. And my tagline on Twitter is, Austerity is Murder. Mm-hmm. because I'm trying to normalize that word. I'm trying to get people to think about the world through the terms of austerity, because I know in Europe, austerity is a word that is used very frequently. But in the United States, we just assume that that just means that you're a taker. And so for me personally, I found my pathway with the suffering people. I'm talking to people that are materially in harm's way, that are the vulnerable and who often are ignored. Yeah. For me, this is my gateway into breaking MMT down to where the people that are suffering suddenly say, oh, MMT does matter. And they're not particularly polite because they're dying. So in communicating with different communities, they have different messages that they must hear to get to the point of MMT making a difference to them. 
a lot of them are just innocent that don't understand. And the best way to get to them is however that conversation works out, whatever that way is. How do you help everyone understand that every message is not for everyone? What are your thoughts about messaging? Well, it's a complicated issue, but think about the Keynesian revolution. Is If you think about the New Deal, like 32 or 33, that's before Keynes' general theory. So, because people know in many ways what they want, and obviously the New Deal is something that's very beneficial to the US economy. So what Keynes' theory did, it explained why it would work. It justified it. Now, if you move forward to the future, if you approach a guy and you say, well, I've got people living in cardboard boxes, and I've got African-Americans who aren't getting the opportunities they want. I've got people who can't get insulin. I've got people who have got a load of student debt. Can we solve it? And then the guy leans over his table and lifts his glasses and said, look, Steve, I get it, but we can't afford it. Now, that is where MMT is your big thing because you're looking back in the eye and you say you're the currency issuer you can afford it there's an old saying if you don't want to do something don't explain all the complexity about why you don't want to do it just say you can't afford it so you blow that open so somebody says right well there's a guy in a cardboard boss we can't afford it say well have you got any unemployed house builders, any unemployed people who can build houses, and have you got the ability to produce bricks? Yes, you can afford it. We want more people in healthcare. Have you got unemployed people who could be nurses if you trained them? Yes, you can afford it. So once you turn it on to, if you've got the real resources and you've got the willingness to employ them, then you can afford it. Their big card is, who's going to pay for it? And you say, it's a non-question. So you will have problems if, for example, you're in a country where everyone's working flat out and you want more nurses or you want more doctors or you want more teachers. Well, you might have to raise taxes not to pay for it, but to take some income out of the private sector so that private sector demand is reduced, resources then are freed, which the government can employ. You put your taxes up, feels less spending, less people working in banking. The people who are spared could then move into the resource areas you want. So you do have difficult choices, but the framing of the choices is about real resources and where they're going to go. And then you formulate it's a political choice. That's all it is. And given the government is a currency issuer, I'll explain about the student thing. If you imagine Britain, what happens is we have student loans. The guy gets a loan. They don't get any money. The student loan company pays the university directly for the fees. But if they earn more than a certain amount, don't know if it's the same in the US, then they pay the loan back loan in inverted commas. But if they don't earn a certain level, they don't have to pay it. So it's a big, heavy weight hanging over the head of a graduate. 
But it's not really a loan. A loan, you have to pay back. In England, you only pay it back when you earn more than £25,000 a year. What it is then is a graduate tax. Functionally, that's what it is. If your income goes over a certain level, then you'll pay like £100, £200 a month to the government. So all it is is taxing a merit good. For anyone who's an economist, you tax demerit goods. You don't put a tax on something that benefits the community. So it's totally immoral and has no reason whatsoever. And that is the beauty of MMT. You can't solve all the problems. What MMT does explains how the system works. And once you understand how the system works, you can then think about your priorities, what you can and can't do. What would stop the US government, for example, employing a real Green New Deal isn't how much money it's going to cost. It's has the US got the real resources, the technology, the skill, the political will to produce its energy carbon free? If it has, it can do it. If it aren't, it's going to be more difficult, might take longer. So it formulates the questions. It gets the questions correctly structured. But you've got to hit them hard with the who's going to pay for it. It's a non-question. And that, to me, is the answer. It sets the theory. It explains the system. And that's distinct from but informs the policies, like the job guarantee, like the idea of a Green New Deal. These are separate to MMT. But as you say, you can explain MMT in different ways to different people. And that's why MMT needs an academic source. It needs people like Bill, Warren, Randy, Stephanie, Pavlina, Dirk, your top academics. It needs them. It needs activists like Gims. It needs people like yourself, Steve, and Christian and Patricia over in the UK. So we're all part of the community. We're operating at different levels and we're a movement, but we've got a purpose. And the purpose is we want to make the world a better place. I'm an old guy. I'm coming up 64. The old Beatles song will apply to me very soon. So that's why I'm doing it. I like MMT. I enjoy it. But also it's got a purpose. If people understood it, it ain't going to solve all the world's problems. But it gives you a basis for, if you like, structuring the problems and understanding the options that we've got, the costs, the benefits, what we need to do, if that answers your question. It absolutely does, and it's a great way to get us out the door. Phil, let me ask you your last thoughts, parting words for the audience. Well, it's been a pleasure to be part of Macro and Cheese. I've really enjoyed talking to you, Steve. It's absolute privilege to be on the show. If you're interested in MMT, whatever age you are, read about it. Read the primary literature if you're up to it and you've got plenty of time. Read Warren's work. Fantastic. If anybody wants to ask me questions, you can always direct message me on Twitter. That's absolutely fine. So if you're interested in my book, I apologize for it being very yeah. expensive. Hopefully you can get it from a university library. That's what I'd like to happen if it was available more widely in libraries. If you're a student, ask your university librarian to buy it. That would be great. So apologies. 
Any questions at all, by all means, send them via Steve or via a message on Twitter. That's absolutely fine. I'm down as, I think, at Phil Armstrong 58. So you should find me there. Try and follow the GIMS website. It's a British website, but we link in. We have all the major American MMTs and Bill, of course, as advisors and part of the advisory board. There is a GIMS book coming out very soon. Keep an eye open for that. All the big hitters, or nearly all the big hitters, are contributing to that book. At least one chapter, Bill Mitchell, Warren Moser, Randy Ray, who is the editor. So keep a lookout. And John, the cowboy economist, Harvey, he's in there. <laughs> Pavlina's in there. I can't tell you them all, but great book when that comes out. I hope it won't be too expensive. So thanks again for the opportunity to speak. Steve, much appreciate The pleasure is all mine. And with that, <laughs> I'm Steve Grumbine with Macro and Cheese with my guest, Phil Armstrong. We're out of here. Macro and Cheese is produced by Andy Kennedy. Descriptive writing by Virginia Cox and promotional artwork by Andy Kennedy. Macro and Cheese is publicly funded by our Real Progressive Patreon account. If you would like to donate to Macro and Cheese, please visit patreon.com slash realprogressives. I want the truth!